Merry December, everybody! You couldn't tell, but I spoke those words in the Coke font, and now they're coming to take me away! Why is Coca-Cola a Christmas-related episode? You tell them, Larry. I always say Coca-Cola kidnaps Santa. I'm also recovering from being very sick, as you can no doubt hear in my voice. It was just starting when I did this interview. Try not to hold it against me. Larry Jorgensen is the official, unofficial historian for Coca-Cola and its vast bottling empire, as well as its modern-day collectors. I know someone will bring this up if I don't do it now. Yes, I do know Coke used to have cocaine in it. I think we have all heard that story by now. Did you know it was also legal when the syrup was originally invented? There's some weird history for you. If you want a lot more fun, weird history than I'll ever be able to give you, you should check out my dear friends over at the Iconoblast podcast. Joel and Coop have a fantastic history show with some of the best humor and tangents you'll ever be able to discover. They gave me a shout out on their podcast recently for some of the things I did for them. My nonsense takes about uh, 20 of the first 30 minutes into their first Iconoblast tangents episode about Bolo Yang. Young? Young. They also spill some of my juicy behind-the-scenes secrets, but hey, that's what friends are for. I'll speak more about podcasting and the friends I've made along the way if you stick around after the episode, or if you just skip to the end, Mark. I'll also be talking about how you can get started podcasting with my sponsor. Oh, uh, I also have a Patreon now, which could allow you to be the greatest fan of all time. Just search for this show on the Patreon website. Now back to the topic at hand. Larry has written two separate books containing more in-depth history on the bottle manufacturing that made Coke famous than is compiled with the official Coke archivist. I've also asked Larry which cola he preferred at the end of our interview, and he hung up on me when I suggested that RC is on the same level as Coke or Pepsi. So, just for the next hour, let's all be Cokeheads. Wait, is that what Coke fans are called? Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, Larry Jorgensen. Thank you, Colton. It's uh, great to be here and uh, talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is uh, what happened in the history of Coca-Cola. Yes, I'm very excited to hear about this because it seems like a long, rich history. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, so many people don't realize that Coca-Cola all over the country that created, I guess, what is now the world uh, Coca-Cola empire. It was, uh, you know, back when, what is Coca-Cola? Well, you know, the, the first, it was first bottled, not in Atlanta, Georgia, like everybody thinks, well, Coca-Cola is from Atlanta. It was actually first bottled in Vicksburg, Mississippi. And uh, that was five years before Coca-Cola even thought it was okay to bottle Coca-Cola. So it it really does have a grassroots uh, start, and uh, that's that's what we're all about is telling the different places where it got started, and uh, what's happened to those places since then. Yeah, I'm interested. So what's the what's the very beginning of Coca Cola? Well, Coca Cola as a syrup uh, was invented in uh, about 1860, I believe, by John Pemberton. Uh, who had been in the Civil War and was living in Columbus, Georgia, and had a, a very major Civil War injury that was causing him pain. So he developed, he was a pharmacist, and he developed the Coca, what became the Coca-Cola syrup. Uh, he developed it uh, to help relieve his pain. And uh, later he moved to Atlanta, and that's where it sort of became a uh, commercial venture, um, he uh, found that it was working as a pain reliever and took it to a local uh, drugstore, pharmacy, whatever you want to call it at that time, and uh, said, try this. this. This seems to work. And it, it really did take off at that point. 
as they say, for medicinal purposes, you know. So he was just making the syrup that is now the base of Coca-Cola. He later sold that rights, that formula, to a gentleman by name Asa Candler. And Asa had the same basic idea that we'll sell the syrup, and it is more than just medicinal. It's a, it's a great beverage that could be made with this. So he started selling the syrup uh, in gallon bottles to uh, different uh, drug stores and that had soda fountains and so forth around the country. And one of those happened to be in Vicksburg, Mississippi. A gentleman by the name of Joe Biedenharn, who owned the uh, drugstore and the, the soda fountain, and was making the Coca-Cola drink, you know, by a little bit of uh, the syrup and a lot of charged water and serving it across the, the counter. It became very popular. And Joe, at the same time, was also wholesaling the syrup to other drugstores and, uh, and so forth around the area. And he thought, you know, if I could bottle this, this is 1896 now, you know, the people in the country wouldn't have such a hard time getting in here to have a Coca-Cola drink. I could take it to them. So he started bottling Coca-Cola. And, uh, you know, really, really crude. You can go to Vicksburg, and, and I, I tell this in my book, and you can see the restored building where it all started. It's uh, now a museum, and it is an active soda fountain where you can get a, a Coca-Cola. But in any case, he started bottling it, and his first two cases he sent to Asa Candler, the man who owned Coca-Cola syrup. Asa responded back, well, that's all right, you know, but he, he wasn't particularly impressed. And old Joe, the bottler, he said, you know, Asa never sent my bottles back. And in those days, that was an issue. He needed bottles. So it went on for five years. He was bottling Coca-Cola. There was only one other place that later caught on to that idea. And that was in Valdosta, Georgia, about three years later where a gentleman who had a bottling plant where he was bottling sarsaparilla and orange and, you know, that typical soda stuff, um, was able to buy the syrup from a local distributor who was selling it to, to uh, you know, drugstores. And he started bottling. So now we've got two independent bottlers making Coca-Cola in a bottle. And the Coca-Cola company thinks it's really a dumb idea. Well, as it evolved, there were two attorneys from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and they decided that bottling Coca-Cola would be a good thing. In fact, the one attorney had been in the uh, Spanish-American War, had been, to, had been to Cuba, and had sampled a drink over there that was in a bottle, Pina Fria, cold pineapple. And when he came back to Chattanooga, Tennessee, he talked to his friend, a fellow lawyer, and said, I think we should see about bottling this. This is, this is a good idea. I like Coca-Cola. So they go to Atlanta, Georgia, and they talk to uh, Mr. Candler, who owned Coca-Cola syrup manufacturing, and they said, we want to bottle Coca-Cola. We want the rights to bottle Coca-Cola throughout the United States, the exclusive rights. And Chandler said, this is really, really a dumb idea. He said, I, I, don't, I don't think that's a good idea at all. In fact, he called it a backstreet business. And he said, I'm afraid you know, the, the, the Coca-Cola will lose its flavor. And he just, he, he didn't like the idea at all. But you know, two good lawyers, they knew how to talk. And they kept beating on him. And finally, he said, all right. He said, I'll tell you what. You guys go back to the hotel. You draw up a contract of what you exactly want. Bring it to me tomorrow. We'll take another look at it. So they did that. They went back to Mr. Candler the next day with their contract. They gave them exclusive rights to bottle Coca-Cola in the United States. Candler said, I'll agree to this except Mississippi, because I know Joe is bottling it in Mississippi. So uh, he sold them the rights to bottle Coca-Cola, exclusive rights 
throughout the United States for $1. Oh, my and, God. and he never collected the dollar, is what I've been told. And he sent them back to Chattanooga. And before they left, he said, if this doesn't work, don't come crying back to me about it. So they go off to Chattanooga. Well, between the two of them, they've got $1,500. And they have the rights to bottle Coca-Cola throughout the United States. So they set up a little bottling plant, you know, and it was crude, man. I mean, the, the, the people that worked in it were wearing uh, kind of uh, mesh shields over their face because bottles were exploding. And, and they realized that at $1,500 in their bo little bottling plant, they were not going to bottle Coca-Cola for the United States. So they said, well, what, what, do you, what should we do? They said, wait a minute. We've got the rights. Why don't we, they call it franchising now, why don't we start selling pieces of our rights? So, for example, if you were in Paducah, Kentucky, and you wanted a bottle of Coca-Cola, they'd sell you a 50-mile radius of Paducah, Kentucky, say for $1,500, $2,000, and you were the Coca-Cola bottler. However, you had to use, obviously, Coca-Cola syrup when you bottled Coca-Cola. The, the thing about that, you know, never try to outguess an attorney. Every time that bottler in Paducah ordered a gallon of syrup to make Coca-Cola, the two guys that sold him the territory got a commission on that sale of that syrup. So they sold the territory. The guy kept bottling Coca-Cola, buying syrup, and they got a commission on it. And this went on for a long time, and uh, they got very wealthy. But in the same time, they got very active in promoting the bottling of Coca-Cola and selling the territories. And that really is what caused Coca-Cola to take off. I mean, by the early 1900s, there were 1,500 I guess you could call them companies around the country bottling Coca-Cola. And it really became very popular. In fact, um, it became so popular that all of a sudden there were a lot of cola drinks on the market. And they were, I guess you would call knockoffs. You know, there was, uh, for example, there was a drink called Coca-Cola, but it was spelled with a K. Uh, there was churro cola. I think at one time I, I did a little research and I found about 90 different knockoffs that had the term cola in it. So that leads to another story. Coca-Cola was having a problem. All these people were bottling. There was no standard bottle. It would say cola on it. A consumer would walk into a store. He'd see a bottle that said cola. He thought it was Coca-Cola. He'd buy it. Well, this, this had, as far as Coca-Cola was concerned, this had to stop. So what they did in 1904, they issued a challenge to the glass bottle manufacturers of the country. We want a bottle that is Coca-Cola and we're going to patent it and no one else can have that bottle. And we want a bottle. So when you pick it up in your hands, you know you're holding a bottle of Coca-Cola. So there were six companies that responded to the challenge. There was a meeting of Coca-Cola bottlers in, in Atlanta in 1905. All six companies brought their prototype bottles. The company from Terre Haute, Indiana, Root Bottling, brought the winning bottles. And each company brought it was either five or six bottle prototype bottles. So um, the one from the root bottling company and uh, bottle manufacturing company in, in Indiana was selected. And at that time, it was that all the bottles that were presented at that competition were to be destroyed except one from root, which went into the archives of Coca-Cola. Well, as it turned out, there was another one that escaped. That bottle came up for auction, that one extra bottle in California about two years ago, and it sold for over $150,000. Now, 
How do we know it was that bottle? Simple. On the bottom of the bottle was a date 1905. Coca-Cola didn't start actually using the bottle until 1906. They patented it, and, and then they turned it loose for production in 1906. So we do have a survivor of the original six that is somewhere now in California at a collector's vault. And uh, I tried to find out who, and obviously they wouldn't tell me. But uh, I'll, I'll bet uh, you probably remember Colton as a, uh, as a youngster, you know, taking bottles back for two cents deposit, right? Th this, this was a much, much higher deposit on that bottle. Yeah, obviously. That's a, a very high deposit. But it's, uh, you know, it's typical, you know, and the bottles have become an interesting thing in collecting, not just that one for 150000 but there are people all over the country that collect Coca-Cola bottles. And the reason, in the old days when they started this thing, they started putting the name of the bottler on the bottom. It was embossed on the bottom of the bottle. Well, if the bottle came, say, from a bottler that was in a very small town, obviously that bottle was worth more than a bottle from Chicago, Illinois, or wherever. So the, the bottle collectors, this became a thing who could get the most valuable bottle. And, uh, you know, to this day, there are bottle collectors. I talked to one. He's got 2,000 bottles in his basement, you know, and he can tell you where everyone came from and the history of everyone. You know, I've written a book on the history of Coca-Cola. There is actually uh, a few books that have been written on the bottle and lists each bottle, where it came from, and what it's worth if you are to collect them. It's a collector's guide to Coca-Cola bottles. I know, I remember when I was a kid, you'd go to the Coca-Cola vending machine and you'd put in your nickel or six cents or whatever, and you'd get a bottle of Coca-Cola. And on the bottom, there would be the name of the town that originally created that bottle. So the one that got the bottle from the furthest away, he had to buy the next round of Coca-Colas. You know, that got to be a, a big competition. People would, where did your bottle come from? You know. Coca-Cola collectors are, are pretty unique, not just in bottles, but they collect everything that's got a Coca-Cola on it. I mean, you've got old signs, you've got trays, you've got, you, you, today you go through those stores, especially at Christmas time, when Coca-Cola is so popular, and you will see all sorts of Coca-Cola items that have the Coca-Cola logo on them. But the ones that are collectible, Everybody collects them, but the ones that are really collectible are the originals, not the reproductions. And uh, for example, the trays, the Coca-Cola serving trays. Coca-Cola will allow reproductions. Uh, they will license that, but a reproduction must be indicated that it is a reproduction. So if you find a Coca-Cola tray or a sign or whatever, and there's no reproduction indicated on it, you've got an original and you've got something of value. Coca-Cola collectors, not only they, are they all over the United States and they have clubs and a national organization, they're all over the world. You know, um, when they have their big annual convention, the collectors are not just from the United States, they come from many countries and they bring their valuable Coca-Cola treasures to maybe swap, to maybe sell, or to maybe just show off, look what I've got. Yeah, I was just given a a quick look when you said that bottle sold for, you know, $150,000. I just decided to to pull up eBay and I'm like, oh, Coca-Cola bottle, let's see what's on here. And there's a couple of them right now selling for $25,000. And yeah, I was it, like, wow, that is incredible. It is. And, and of course, now Coca-Cola... You'll see it all the time. If something major happens, there'll be a Coca-Cola bottle to commemorate that. So, uh, you know, at the concerts, some of the big concerts, uh, some of the big conventions, Coca-Cola will do a bottle and uh, there'll be the, the date and the convention on there. Well, those have become tremendous collector items because 
They don't do a lot of them. Of course, being here in Louisiana, when the Saints won the Super Bowl <clears throat> a few years ago, there was a Coca-Cola bottle that came out, you know, and I'm sure they've done it for other Super Bowl winners too. But you can, you can bet those were gathered up in mass here in Louisiana. And um, maybe someday uh, they'll do another one. Who knows? <laughs> um, I just say somebody has a case of them in their basement and they're just waiting for a good year. Yeah, wait for it to happen again. So. Yeah. But it's, and it's interesting uh, in talking to the collectors. You know, I, I've had a collector call me and say, do you know that they're going to do uh, a convention in Baton Rouge? For example, they do a, a music event every year. It's called the Essenfest. And um, Coke usually will do a bottle for that. And I've had a collector call me and say, can you get me a copy of that bottle? You know, it's not going to be available except in New Orleans. Can you get one for me? You know, so he would have something rare. And occasionally I've been able to, to do that to get a bottle for him. But it, I guess it's addicting. I'm not a collector. Colton, I'm not a collector at all, uh, but uh, I, I can see where in attending a few of their meetings and their national meetings, I hope they'll collect my book. So uh, I go and uh, there are some interesting products that uh, have been uh, acquired. There's some of the big old signs that go way back, you know. In fact, you talk about the signs, you know, Asa Candler in the 20s, was in Hollywood. And, you know, today you go down the road, you're going to see a Coca-Cola mural on a building. You're going to see a sign. You're going to, it's all over the place. Well, Asa Candler at that time was in Hollywood. And he told one of the movie producers there, the day is coming when you will not be able to make a movie outside without there being a Coca-Cola sign in the background. <laughs> And I think they almost reached that goal at some point, but there's a lot of them. And, and ironically, you know, their um, towns save them. They, they, I, I can recall a couple towns that I've written about them in my book where the city has gone to an expense of creating them funds to restore a Coca-Cola mural on the outside of a building. When, when you talk to them and say, why? You say, well, because that sign is part of our heritage. You know, we want to keep that. That's people enjoy looking at that mural. That's, and it is sort of a piece of art because Coca-Cola is a good memory. It's something when people see that mural or see that sign, they equate it with something pleasant, you know, or a time in their life when something was going on. So the murals become an important memory for them. It's, it's amazing. I, I did in, in one of the books, I did a, uh, a story about a mural in Albion, Michigan. The mural is on a building that hangs over the Kalamazoo River. And that mural and that building, the building was so decaying that they first had to get somebody, a architectural preserving type company in to to do something about the building you know to preserve the building and then they went back and restored the mural bottom line the whole project cost over fifty thousand dollars to preserve a coca-cola mural on the side of a building over the kalamazoo river and the city along with the state of michigan raised the funds to make it happen. That, that's the value they place in those murals. And there's been other places where similar things have happened, where organizations have gotten together and raised money. But the $50,000 one is probably at the top of the list in expenditures to preserve a mural. Yeah. And it sounds like Coke has kind of become a uh, collector's item for not just the bottles, but now the jackets, the trays, and even the wall. <laughs> That's true. And, you know, there's an interesting one in Minnesota. There's a, uh, and I'm right about it in the second book. There's a, an internationally famous wildlife artist who started out his painting career doing the signs on the sides of Coca Cola trucks and the signs of buildings, you know, whatever he could do. He got so good at painting 
the Coca-Cola logo that he could actually paint it upside down and backwards. But anyhow, as he goes on through his career, he also becomes a very famous and a, a, a very successful wildlife artist and um, becomes well known for it. Um, and later on, he would go to things like a Ducks Unlimited banquet or whatever, you know, as a guest speaker, and he'd take a tablecloth and he'd do the Coca-Cola logo upside down and backwards, and they'd auction it off to raise money for the organization. But in any case, he did a painting. I guess you could call it sort of a self-portrait. It's a painting of him in three stages of his life. It shows a young man on a ladder painting a mural on the side of an old country store. And there's a young boy sitting on a, 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 a bucket watching him paint. So it's him as a boy watching himself paint this mural. And then on the front porch of this country store, there's an older gentleman doing a duck decoy carving. He said that was the three phases of his life. Well, the painting became very famous. And an a, um, artist in Hutchison, Minnesota, saw the painting and knew the artist uh, who has since passed away, but knew of him, knew he was famous and said, I want to do a mural of that painting. So he duplicated that painting on the side of the Ace Hardware Store in downtown Hutchison, Minnesota. And it again, if you want to look at a, a, a wonderful piece of Coca-Cola history, Hutchison, Minnesota, on the side of the Ace Hardware Store, and it's a beautiful painting, and it's a reproduction into a mural of an original painting by a Coca-Cola artist. And an interesting story about that artist, when he was still painting Coca-Cola signs and not uh, famous yet as a wildlife artist, he was uh, given the project to paint a Coca-Cola uh, ballpark mural, you know how they put them on the, on the walls out there, in Tifton, Georgia. So he goes to Tifton, and he meets with the little Coca-Cola bottler, and he says, well, will you paint the mural on the, on the, on the baseball park wall for me? Said, yeah, I'll do that. He said, but you know what? I've painted that Coca-Cola logo so many times. It really needs a little help. It needs a little a little more depth to it, you know? He said, do you mind if I change it just a little bit? And the, the modeler said, no, I don't, go ahead, whatever you want to do, you know? So the artist goes out there, paints the sign, paints what he thought would be an improvement on the Coca-Cola logo. The modeler looks at it, he is so impressed. Now he's in Tifton, Georgia, and he is so impressed with that that he calls Coca-Cola corporate in Atlanta. And he said, you have to come see this. So two of the, the mighty powers at Coca-Cola corporate come up to Tifton, Georgia. They look at the sign and they look at the logo, take some pictures and they go back to Georgia. Two days later, they show up in Tifton, Georgia with a contract and a check. And they find that artist and they offer him X amount of money, and I'm told it was a pretty good amount for them to take possession of the logo the way he did it. Now, when you lay the logos side by side, you, you have to be an artist to really understand what he did to improve that logo. But it had to do with the depth of the logo, and it just, it just made it stand out, so to speak. You know, once again, you know, here's, here's someone in Coca-Cola history that added something that uh, really made a difference in, in the, the looks of the product. Of course, then we've got, you know, we've got to talk about looks of the product. Do you remember this story of the, um, uh, the new Coca-Cola? What was that in the 80s when they introduced the new Coca-Cola? This was going to take on. Well, what happened at that time, Coca-Cola and Pepsi. Pepsi had initiated a thing called the Pepsi Challenge. And there was television on it. It was all over. And they, a person would be invited to take the challenge. 
and there would be two unmarked little cups of cola. And they would sample each one and they would say, which one do you prefer? And what was happening is Pepsi was winning the challenge and it was driving Coca-Cola crazy. So they said, what are we going to do? And they sampled Pepsi and they sampled Coca-Cola and they said, you know what? Pepsi is sweeter. That's it. Pepsi. So they came out with the new Coca-Cola and there was two years of promotion and advertising. And this is it, the new Coca-Cola. And people didn't like it. I had Coca-Cola bottlers tell me that their salesmen, when they were in the store stocking Coca-Cola, little old ladies would come up to them and threaten them and say, if you don't get my Coca-Cola back, I'm never going to buy your product again. <laughs> Finally, after two years, Coca-Cola said, something's not working here. Well, the answer is simple to a person like you and me, Colton. It would be easy to understand. If you have two drinks put in front of you and you're allowed to just take a sample of each one and one is sweeter, chances are you're going to go with the sweeter drink. But if you're given a can of each one and told to drink it down, you're going to have more enjoyment with the less sweet one. And that's what had happened. <laughs> Pepsi had rigged the competition, so to speak, unbeknowing that they just thought they had a better product. Well, they had a sweeter product. And uh, Coca-Cola users weren't real happy with that idea. So uh, the uh, new Coca-Cola became history, except I think it was earlier this year where Coca-Cola did do a run of it, just, I guess, as a promotional gimmick to say, this is what it was. And they, they did a run and, you know, typical, I imagine they had to practically give it away. But uh, anyhow, that's the story of uh, the new Coca-Cola. And now we're back to the original, which is where they should have been to start with. Yeah, where they went to back to Coke Classic. Coke Classic, yeah, that's what they called it, the Coca-Cola Classic. Well, remember we talked about the bottle. You know, the original Coca-Cola bottle had a light green tint to it. That was not by design. That was by happenstance. The uh, Root Bottle Manufacturing Company in Terre Haute, Indiana, owned a sand quarry about 50 miles away, ironically, in a town called Greencastle, which had nothing to do with it. But they were getting their sand from that quarry they owned. And it so happened that that sand had some minerals in it, including copper, that when the glass was made, the bottle was made, it had that light green tint to it. Coca-Cola loved it. They said, that's it. That's great. And later, when the other bottle manufacturers were licensed to make that bottle, Coca-Cola told them, if your sand your natural resources does not have those minerals to create that green, you must add them. So for years, we had a green tinted Coca-Cola bottle that happened because that's what was in the, in the uh, sand for the first bottle. Yeah. So what happens to break away from these glass bottles? Is it just because they needed to mass manufacture them? Well, what, what happened in, um, I guess it was about the 1980s, Coca-Cola told their bottlers, we are in a throwaway society and it's growing and you better get ready for canned Coca-Cola. And here's the bottlers, they've been buying these big bottles and they're reusing them. You know, that's why, you know, you're in Oregon, you get a bottle from California, you know, because they're reusing them. And, uh, Coca-Cola said, we're in a throwaway society. People do not want to take bottles back. They want cans. It's coming. Get ready. Well, here's the bottlers. They've been using bottles. They're supposed to now have canning, too. That was expensive to set up their plant. So many of the bottlers formed co-ops with other bottlers, and they would set up one canning operation where they would get their, their canned product to go along with the bottled product. Well, but we still had the problem of throwaways. The Coca-Cola bottle 
was an expensive bottle because it was made to be reused. So the bottle manufacturers had to come up with a lightweight, less expensive bottle so it could be thrown away. And consequently, that's how we went from returnable bottles to non-returnable bottles to cans. It was to meet what the consumer wanted. The consumer didn't want to drag anything back to the store. He didn't want to save them. He just wanted to have this Coke. And if he's out at a picnic, where's the trash can? I'm going to throw this in the trash can. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense, especially as the the brand starts to expand. That's a, a large cost to kind of endure for a long time. Yeah. Well, you know, in Chattanooga, it's you know, Chattanooga, because of the two guys that really got the rights to, to bottle Coca-Cola, there were a lot of spin-off industries that happened in Chattanooga. And there was, in fact, a bottle manufacturer in Chattanooga that got the rights to, to make the bottle. There also was a company in Chattanooga, amongst others, that made the wooden cases which now are collectible items, okay? So one company is making the cases, another company is making the bottles. Well, a lot of times the two salesmen from these companies would get together and they'd go out and visit Coca-Cola bottlers and they'd sell them the bottles and the cases. So when the the order for bottles came to to your Coca-Cola bottler, a lot of that order would probably be in wooden cases as well. So that was an industry that evolved in Chattanooga, along with the bottle manufacturing, along with a vending company that made the Coca-Cola vending machines. The Cavalier, they were the first to make the vending machines. And they they originally started out making furniture, and then they got into making a, a chest, a wooden ice chest, so to speak, that you could put Coca-Cola bottles in and keep it cold. Well, from there, it evolved into the first vending machine and then bigger, more improved. And now there are other companies. In fact, Cavalier is no longer in business. But consequently, as a collector, there are people that collect the vending machines. And of course, the older and the more rare you know, the more expensive that, I mean, there's Coca-Cola vending machines that are going for $10,000 right now because they're old and, you know, there's only a few of them left around. So it's, it's again, people that, that collect Coca-Cola and Chattanooga, I always say Chattanooga has almost as much or more Coca-Cola history than Atlanta because there was so much spinoff there. Other companies that benefited by the fact that the push started in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I've got a good chapter on that in the book, too, and and how another person got involved uh, in the selling of the territories and and how he what happened. I'll try to be brief with this, but there were the two lawyers. And at one point, they, as happens with business partners, they decided they wanted to go separate ways. So they divided the country in half. And one of them took one half, and one took the other half. Well, the one that took the southern half didn't have a lot of resources. And he sold half of his half to a gentleman in Chattanooga who also came from a family, was part of a family that did the old, you know, patent medicine trick. So they knew bottling. They knew the business. And that was the Lupton family. Well, Mr. Lupton got really aggressive with Mr. Whitehead and um, started selling territories as well. Uh, And Mr. Whitehead, who was one of the lawyers, went to Atlanta, Georgia, and opened what, in fact, was the first Coca-Cola bottling plant in Atlanta. It was not opened by Coca-Cola corporate. It was opened by one of these guys from Chattanooga. In the meantime, Mr. Lupton is selling territories, and he stays in Chattanooga. He's got lots of contacts, lots of friends. I mean, he's been in the the patent medicine business, you know. And what what, uh, Mr. Lupton would do, he'd find someone that was interested in getting a territory. If they didn't have enough money, he would, you know, he'd grubstake them. 
he'd say, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll help you pay for the territory, but I want to take a percentage of the company. And most of the times he took half percent, you know. So he grew to become a, a proxy, I guess you would say, Coca-Cola bottler, because he was involved in all these companies that he was setting up. Well, this went on to the third generation of the Lupton family. By the time the third generation came, they weren't really interested anymore than the younger one in what was going on. They would kind of wanted to cash, cash in, you know, get out of this thing. It so happened at that point, Coca-Cola had seen what was happening with distributors and bottlers, and they wanted to buy in. They started buying territories. Well, to show you the value, they bought out the Lupton properties, and they were big. They were in a lot of big markets. They bought them out lock, stock, and barrel for $1.3 B as in boy billion dollars. And there's been a lot of other cases, although not quite as wealthy as that, where Coca-Cola went on a buying binge and bought a lot of territories from families that either didn't want to do it anymore or could be persuaded into not doing it anymore for the right amount of money or whatever. And today there are less than 100 independent Coca-Cola bottlers throughout the United States. Now, Coca-Cola corporate did realize that that move on their part was a mistake. Again, we're like the, you know, the, the new Coca-Cola because all of a sudden they had more territory then they really knew what to do with the secret to Coca-Cola and the little hometown bottlers was that they were hometown. They were involved and they knew what the people in their town needed. They built baseball parks, they supported groups and whatever. And all of a sudden Coca-Cola corporate had too many problems to deal with. So they started selling back to existing bottlers, the territories and a lot of territories were acquired by what at that time was the the old family bottlers. Other bottlers, you know, uh, merged with other bottlers, and you know, it's it's a big game right now. You know, the, in in my second book, I write about the the bottling uh, company in Tullahoma, Tennessee, that had been through three generations, and. Ultimately, this past year, were sold to a company out of Chicago that is one of the largest independent Coca-Cola bottlers in the country. They own, you know, Coca-Cola plants all over the country. And many of the Coca-Cola plants, in fact, in these little towns are not bottlers anymore. They're simply distribution centers. You know, a, a big company will come in and they'll they'll buy the territory and they'll buy the building and they'll use the building as a distribution center because it's cheaper to produce Coca-Cola in one place and truck it to the other places in your territory than to set up bottling plants in all these little bitty towns. They were originally established because transportation was difficult. It was, you know, you didn't have big modern highways and big semis hauling product. So you build a little plant and you sold Coca-Cola from that plant. But as transportation improved, as highways improved, the plants were closed, consolidated with a central plant. Uh, you've got here in, in, in my area, a company called Coca-Cola United, which is based out of Birmingham. They have seven states and they have, for example, in Louisiana, they have all of the old bottling facilities, which are now warehouses except one, uh, and they're used as distribution points. And that's what's happened. You've, you've, you know, and they are the third largest bottler, of independent bottler of Coca-Cola in the country. They have bottling plant in almost every state they serve, but that plant serves all those uh, distribution centers in that state. And and that's what's, what's happened. And the big get bigger, you know, it's that old little fish in a pond routine. Yeah. 
of course. I just wanted to ask what kind of drove you to be, you know, so interested to write not one but two books about well, Coke. Yeah, that's an interesting story. I'm I guess in the business I'm what they call an old news dog because my my background is newspaper, radio, television, news writing, you know, and, and some freelance and the whole stick. And at the time I was doing some freelance travel writing. And I realized there was a Coca-Cola plant, the one we talked about in Vicksburg, a Coca-Cola museum, the one in Vicksburg. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And then I found out there was another Coca-Cola museum that was about 70 miles away in Monroe, Louisiana. And it was in fact, represented the family that started the first one in Vicksburg. And they're beautiful museums, you know, and they're a tribute to the people that started Coca-Cola in that area. So I thought, that's a great travel story. Here's two plants, two museums, that people who are interested in the history of Coca-Cola could go see in one day, would be a nice travel experience through northern Louisiana and Vicksburg, Mississippi, which is loaded with history. So I started out to write a travel feature. I went to Vicksburg, you know, visited there, took pictures, got the story. Then from there, went to Monroe. Same thing, visited the museum. And I started to meet with people who in fact were, you know, fourth, fifth generation of the original bottler. And the one gentleman told me, he said, yeah, we appreciate what you're doing, but you know, this story is all over the country. There are lots of bottling families like ours who really made Coca-Cola happen. And he started telling me about a few of them. And I thought, you know, this is not a story. This is not a travel story. This is, has potential for a book. I'd only written one other book before that. And I thought, why not? You know, I'm going to do it. So I set out to do it. And the more I did it, the more I found places that had this Coca-Cola history. And what, what we've tried to do with the book, Colton, is we've tried to use it as a travel guide. You can go to places that have Coca-Cola history. And now, like in Paducah, Kentucky, beautiful Coca-Cola plant there that is now a combination of a pizza place a brew pub, and a couple gift stores. But it's the original Coca-Cola plant, and it's gorgeous. Uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, another wonderful-looking old Coca-Cola plant downtown is now part, it includes a beautiful hotel. And around it, uh, like in the, the shop where the tr trucks were kept and so forth, there are stores, and it's a whole neat tourist visitor attraction. So what we've tried to do with the book is say, here, this is where you can go and you'll see something. You can go touch, feel, look at something that has Coca-Cola history. And we're not talking about a building that now has a bunch of lawyers in it, you know, and desks. We're talking about a building where you can go in, sit down and have something to eat or drink or shop or be entertained. There's a lot of them that have become little entertainment centers. So here's where you can go. And while you're there, if you look at the book and you read what's there, we're going to tell you what it was before and how it got to where it is now. And we include in the book over 200 historic photos, how it looked like, for example, in Vicksburg, I have a photo which I have taken the liberty to label the world's first Coca-Cola delivery man. Because in fact, he must have been. It's a black gentleman on a, on a horse-drawn wagon with a load of Coca-Cola bottles in cases. Well, this was 1896 when the picture was taken. That was the only place that Coca-Cola was being bottled and he was delivering it. I mean, I think I can conclude that he was the world's first Coca-Cola delivery man. And that picture is in the book. And in fact, we're having that picture uh, reproduced because it is such a classic, uh, you know. So that's the type of stuff that uh, that's in the book. And, and uh, how did I get to the second one? 
Well, the second one is called Return to the Coca-Cola Trail. Not very original, but that's what it is. What happened after the first one came out, I didn't realize the magic of Coca-Cola. I mean, it's it has continued to sell. You know, I mean, it's, it's amazing. And people who read it would contact me. They'd see me at a show or they'd send me an email or whatever. And they'd say, you forgot about, you didn't write about Starkville, Georgia, or you didn't write about, you know. So I started, I called it my forget about box. And I, I'd take these notes and throw it in the box, you know. And all of a sudden I realized I had enough in that box to do another book. So then I took the notes and I started researching if a person told me about a, a great plant in, you know, whatever town that was now being used for a purpose where people could go and enjoy it, then I would go do the research on that, on that plant. What was it before? You know, how did it get to where it is now? And what, what were the plants before it? You know, I mean, some of these plants that we write about that are existing today, they may be the second or third Coca-Cola plant that was built in that town. You know, we went from a little bitty plant where they were bottling and by hand and foot, you know, uh, to the next generation to finally the ultimate generation, which still exists. So the book not only tells you what's there now, but it, it has pictures and history of what led up to what was there. And we've found some great stories and we've talked to, um, you know, descendants of, of people that started Coca-Cola bottling and they have shared stories, um, everything from when the Coca-Cola plant in Nashville, Arkansas was robbed by a couple guys who were supposedly spinoffs from the Bonnie and Clyde gang to, to other wonderful stories of how Coca-Cola got into communities and what they did in communities that, that is still there today. So that, that's the whole thing. So the book, number two, is the You Forgot About book. And it, it's all there. But I, I always recommend to people read the first one first because we start with Vicksburg and we go from there. Yeah, it definitely sounds like uh, kind of the, the recovery you know, hey, if you took a good vacation and you followed the Coca-Cola trail and you want to do it again, but different, we now have a second trail. You know, you mentioned that I had a gentleman from California after the first book came out, sent me an email and he said, I am planning my summer vacation around places in your book. I thought this definitely is a Coca-Cola fan, you know. But it's been fun. I mean, the comments I've gotten and the Coca-Cola bottlers, the families who have said of all the books that have been written about Coca-Cola, they've all been about corporate Coca-Cola. No one has ever written about us, what we've done, you know. And if it wouldn't have been for those little bottlers, Coke wouldn't have grown like it has, you know. I mean, and we're in Christmas right now. Coca-Cola, I, I always say Coca-Cola kidnapped Santa because Coca-Cola had the artist who created in the 1920s the image of Santa Claus that we all recognize now. You know, before that, he was kind of a rough, gruff old guy from, from Europe. And Coca-Cola said, no, we want to be part of this. And Santa's going to look better. And they turned their artist loose on it. And that's the Coca, the Santa that we recognize today. You, you may remember Colton about uh, three or three years ago, I think it was the US Post Office issued a series of four Christmas stamps that had four different Santas on them. Well, each of those Santas in fact, was a Santa that had been created by the Coca-Cola artist. You know, they didn't say that on the stamp, but that's the fact. That's what it was. You know, and right now, in fact, last night here in my hometown, the big Coca-Cola truck was in town, right? All lit up and giving out goodies to people. And, and that's become a tradition. How did that happen? Because an ad agency back in the 90s came up with a Coca-Cola commercial. And they created, you know, virtually 
this Coca-Cola truck that would go to town and spread the joy of Christmas. Well, that was such a hit that Coca-Cola put it into reality and it's all over the world. You know, I've seen uh, messages from, from, especially from England, where it's like, Coca-Cola truck's going to be in our town. When's it coming? You know, I mean, it's, it's amazing. So they've, they've taken that and, and it's a good feeling. You know, they go into these towns with these trucks and they, they give away product and Santa's there sometimes. And it's, it's just a warm feeling. And what about Charlie Brown's Christmas? Charlie Brown's Christmas wouldn't have happened without Coca-Cola. Reason? Because nobody wanted to sponsor it, sponsor the idea. They thought it was a stupid idea. This kid with a scraggly Christmas tree? What's good about that? You know, Coca-Cola saw the potential of Charlie Brown's Christmas and made it happen. They sponsored it, and to this day, Coca-Cola and Charlie Brown's Christmas is part of the season. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, how many times have you heard the phrase where somebody's like, oh, that's a Charlie Brown tree? Yeah. You know? exactly. And they're just like referring to a small tree. And you're like, wow, that's really ingrained in American history at this point. Yeah. But, and that's why people collect Coca Cola. It's because they create those warm feelings. You know, there, there are guys that collect uh, beer memorabilia. You know, I know a few of them, okay? And it's the same thing. They collect things because when they look at it, it brings back a good memory. You know, whether it's a an old Pabst Blue Ribbon can or whether it's a Coca-Cola bottle, you know. Sure, yeah. It's that feeling of nostalgia that everyone wants to feel. And, I mean, what better way to do that than to own Santa Claus? <laughs> Exactly. So, you, you know, and we talk about it being worldwide. You know, you and I are sitting here in the comforts of the United States. I did an interview about a month ago with a big radio station in Dubai. And when the gentleman contacted me to do this interview, I said, Dubai? He said, absolutely, we're the biggest station in Dubai. And I said, well, that's wonderful. I'm Coca-Cola in the United States. He said, we love Coca-Cola. Of course, he had an English accent that I can't duplicate. But, you know, we love Coca-Cola here. And I've done several interviews uh, with with uh, people in, in England. And, and, and I've got uh, collectors. In fact, the collectors are very big in Australia. And I've had a lot of collectors contact me from Australia. Uh, wanting the book. And I explained to him, you know, sending that book to Australia is not going to be, you know, inexpensive. And uh, we don't care. We want the book. Send it, you know. So it, again, you know, Colton, it's the magic of Coca-Cola. I never, ever thought when I got into this that that name would bring the reaction it's brought. You know, I thought, well, yeah, Coca-Cola is nice. You know, it's not nice. You've got people that are dedicated to that name. And and that's, you know, the, the, the bottlers, the, the distributors today are so dedicated to that product. They will do practically anything in their community they can to perpetuate that good feeling for that brand. No, I don't get, I don't work for Coca-Cola. I don't get paid to say this, but I truly believe it. They are such a unique feel good company. And it shows, you know, they, the other products that they, they've bought and the other trends that they, they're on, they're not just Coca-Cola, you know, I mean, it started with what Minute Maid orange juice, you know, but I mean, they're, they come out with new products. They recently bought uh, what is that energy uh, Powerade, mm -hmm. right? The competitor to Gatorade. Uh, they had a small investment in that, and they decided we're going for it. And they so they they bought it. They bought the whole company, and I, I guarantee the way Coca Cola does things, it won't be long. You're going to see on the football field a big container of 
Powerade dumped over the coach's head after a victory. <laughs> I mean, it's just the way they go after it. They're marketing and, and, and they know good products. They know when something is doing well, they go after it. And they're not afraid to drop a product line when it's, no, it's not doing well. They've dropped a few. Um, probably, and I don't know if it's in your area or not, but one product that they've purchased that you don't even realize is Coca-Cola. There's a milk line called Fairlife. I don't know if you get it where you are or not, but it's it's a it's a line of, of milk and now it's yogurt and and similar products called Fairlife. It's a company they invested in small portion because they liked the way the company was treating the cows and the way things were being processed, and they, they bought into it. They got so into it that they bought it. They bought the whole company, you know, and true to my cause, I go to the store now, there's Fairlife. I buy Fairlife instead of whatever brand I was buying before. Uh, it's a good product, you know. Uh, I'm not a big uh, drinker of Coca-Cola. You know, I'm not the kind of guy that has to get up in the morning and have a Coke. But I have recently found their new Coca-Cola coffee. It's a coffee-flavored Coca-Cola. Huh. And it's, it's uh, been out about uh, less than a year, probably six, seven months. It's in, the, you know, they're using those long, narrow cans now a lot for their, and it's, it's in that, it's in that can. I think there's, there's three flavors. There's uh, dark which is the one I like, so I remember that. There's a vanilla and there's one other one. And there's just enough of a coffee flavor to it that it's still Coke, but it's different. And what I do, because I, you know, I don't sit down and drink a can of Coca-Cola, I will take that can, and don't tell Coke I do this, um, I'll pop it open and I'll let it sit in the refrigerator open and get, you know, semi-flat, okay? And, and I find at that stage, the coffee flavor is even stronger because the carbonation doesn't, doesn't get in the way, you know? So there's so many different things that they have done to keep up with trends, you know? It's fun to watch them, you know? And it's, it's interesting to see when they give up on something, they well, this isn't working, back with it, you know? Yeah, I think people would be surprised. I mean, if you looked at a lot of you know major sodas, if you turn that can over or the bottle over, there's probably a Coke stamp on it. I mean, that's like a 50% chance in yeah. most places that if you, you flip it over, it says right on the, the little label, like a Coke product. Yep, sure does. And they just, they seem to have a knack of knowing what's going on. And, it, you know, it's um, like the energy drink. They were um, producing an energy drink in uh, England, but they had a contract with Monster, you know, and they bought like 20, 30% of Monster in the early years. And they had an agreement in that first uh, purchase of Monster that they would not do an energy drink in the United States. Well, the energy drink in Europe took off so well and it came time to renew the contract with Monster. And there was a lot of negotiations and a lot of talk, but uh, finally they were able to break that uh, provision that they, now they of course do the Coca-Cola energy drink in the United States as well, because they, they saw in England the trend and they saw over here what was happening. And they said, no, we gotta, we gotta go after this market. This is a good market. And that, that's the way they do things. Yeah. It's honestly just a lot of fun to listen to this because you're like the Coca-Cola historian. That's not corporate. Yeah. I'm, you know, when I didn't start out to do the book and Coca-Cola has a tremendous archives. And, and at that time there was a, a gentleman who handled the archives who was, became a great friend, but I would not go unless I was totally desperate on something, I would not go to the archives for information because I wanted it to be something that I found. 
that I dug up that I would go to a, a local historical society or a local library or where there's old magazines or where there's family to get what I wanted. I just felt I wanted it to be something other than sterilized by Coca-Cola archives. And, and that's how the book evolved. And there's a lot in these books that even Coca-Cola archives didn't know. I've talked, uh, for example, the story I told you about the logo changing. I talked to the lady who now is in charge of Coca-Cola archives. She never heard that. And, she, and she's in Georgia. It, it happened in Georgia. All she knew when she dug through the files was, yes, they had paid this uh, artist for some sort of a contract. But she had no idea what the story was or who the artist was, you know. So it's uh, it's been fun. It's been a good, it's been for me a good trip down an interesting trail. And I invite anybody to explore the Coca-Cola trail. Yeah, and it sounds like, I mean, a great journey for anyone that does enjoy the Coke history or is just like interested in maybe planning their next trip. Maybe they need to pick up your book. Yeah, and and there's, you know, there's so much personal in there of these people. You know, yeah, it's Coca-Cola, but the battles they went through, you know, to achieve success in a business can relate to any business the early marketing, you know, and, and how that all happened. And uh, so if you're in business, if you're interested in business history, it's worth taking a look at too. Absolutely. Well, I've had a great time with this and I thank you again, Larry, for coming on. Well, thank you, Colton. It's been great. And uh, people, I'll get my plug in here. If people want to get the book, it's the website, the coca-colatrail.com. Pretty simple. You can get one or both. But get the get number one first. That's right. But don't forget the forgotten files. <laughs> right. Who knows what's next? Exactly. All righty. Thank you very much, Larry. Have a great day. Thank you, Golden. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you either enjoyed this episode or have used it to slip into a blissful sleep. For those of you who are asleep, you will tell all your friends and family they need to listen to the Just Dumb Enough podcast. You will also leave a five-star review on iTunes. I think somebody once told me that whispering to a sleeping person works like hypnosis. Can't miss a chance. Either way. As I said at the top of the show, I owe a huge thank you to all of my friends and to the podcasting friends that I have made along the way. They all helped me get to where I am now. Uh, Joel Coop. Bill, Tim, Michael, probably enough people at the Tetherball Academy Media Company that I owe them a basket or something. Anyway, if you'd like to start podcasting like me, or more likely like other podcasters you listen to, you should use my sponsor, Podbean. This podcast is sponsored by Podbean. Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. We use Podbean to host the Just Dumb Enough podcast. Download the free Podbean podcast app to start record, and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Podbean provides everything you need to run your podcast, and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Download the free Podbean app today. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Head on over to Podbean at www.podbean.com and use the code PODCAST21 for your first 30 days of podcast hosting for free. Check it out! All right, my second voice is totally trash now. Hopefully I'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.